Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope that you all are, are doing well this morning. This is a, a, a big day for us, a Sovereign Grace Church, and we have a lot to do. So I hope you've already turned to 1 Peter chapter 2 because we're just about ready to start reading it together. Uh, just really quickly, last week we saw the glorious truth of our salvation accomplished by God, the pursuit of holiness and how it is applied. The goal of our salvation is love, the love for one another, a brotherly love, a sincere brotherly love. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that because we have a lot to do. We're going to jump right in. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Chapter 2, Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God and chosen, sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Amen. How glorious. Verse 3, which was part of last week's passage, says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good then reading passages like 4 through 10 should exhilarate our souls. We hear and we see and we feel the goodness of God in passages like this. Yet one of the hardest things about the Christian life isn't necessarily Sunday mornings, but Mondays, Monday afternoon, Tuesday mornings, Tuesday afternoon, Thursday at lunch, whatever the day may be, or even Saturdays, or even early Sunday morning, in the midst of a difficult and long day or week, it's remembering 
these exhilarating truths. These truths that stir our souls. Because it's in those days, it's in those times of the, of the week when we're in the thick of it, when we need these the most. Unfortunately, what often happens, and I know this for myself, is that we forget who we are in those moments. It's not a physical or a mental amnesia kind of kind of way where you might forget your name or where you live or where you put your wallet or where you put your keys. No, I mean a, a spiritual amnesia where life can put so much pressure on you at work or at home in relationships that we just get tired and we get fatigued and that's when we are tempted the most to forget who we are in Christ and so we respond and react not in the ways that we were told to last week in love and forgiveness and bearing with one another but in sin we react as if Jesus isn't our king we react as if he isn't and the word of God is not the imperishable seed that is changing us from one degree to the glow of glory to the next. We respond as if there is no Holy Spirit in us or that these things aren't true. Now, now that's not what we believe, right? We, we will say, no, that's not what I believe, but functionally, functionally, we deny their true identity based upon our circumstances. We will deny our identity is true in Christ. You see, this isn't just my problem. This is a human problem, right? This is the, the human heart. We are so quick to forget what truly matters. And oftentimes, we forget because we have been pressing in so much to build our identity in other things. We have been building little platforms above, our, above us that we would put ourselves and our identity in. We, we, uh, we, we seek that in our jobs, right? We seek that in our jobs for a better performance, right? We want to perform above and, and, and beyond to, to receive praise and to receive promotion. And then our identity gets wrapped up in our performance at our jobs. Or, or maybe it's in our homes. Our homes have to be immaculate all the time. Or, or what will people think of me or us? The lawn has to be perfect to impress the neighbors. Our children have to perform and be perfectly obedient so that people will look at you and say, what good parents you must be the presentation of of dress we dress for success and what we drive and what we buy it's to give a presentation often of who we want to identify ourselves to be now raising children to be obedient having a well-kept home or cut grass and doing well at your job these are not bad things these are actually really good things and the lord would tell christians in the bible that some of these things are a matter of holiness but if we are serving them as ultimate and wrapping our identity around those things in such a way then we are not identifying ourselves in Christ, but those things have become the very things we serve and not 
the Lord. Because often what happens is our homes do not always look clean or kept. Can I get an amen? amen. They're not. Often, we work hard at our job. We work very hard in our job, and the, per, the promotion doesn't come. We raise our children to be respectful and kind and to be obedient. And despite how hard we do the work at that, I guarantee you, they're not always going to be obedient. They're not always going to do what you expect them to do. And so what happens then when those platforms are no longer able to hold up your hope and your identity? Our world begins to crumble. We react in sin. We blame others. We want to shift blame. It's not my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's not our fault. It's our children's fault. It's not... This person's fault, it's my boss's fault, right? We, we want to, the shift plane and our worlds become, starts to crumble because this false identity that's never meant to be able to hold up our hopes begins to crumble and be exposed. But Peter, Peter here in chapter 2 is painting a whole other picture to these suffering saints in Asia Minor. Right? Remember, their worlds were being taken from them piece by piece through persecution and through suffering. And Peter's saying, listen, don't tie your identity in those things when they take them away. Then it won't hurt as much. But tie your identity, place your identity completely in Christ alone. Your purpose is in Christ alone. And so this morning, I want to paint the same picture that I believe Peter is painting for these saints. And I have three points. First, we are to understand our new identity in Christ. We are to see how we are like Christ. We are to see how we are like Christ. Now, to our theologically astute, you may be like, uh-oh. Trust me, we're going to get there. It's going to make sense. But to understand how we are like Christ, we must understand who he is. Good news. We don't have to go very far from Peter. We don't have to go searching through all the scriptures to find out who Jesus is. Certainly a very worthwhile endeavor. But Peter has already shown us quite a bit on who Jesus is. If you have questions this morning about who Jesus is, I, pay attention. In chapter 1, verse 1, we see that he is the Christ. Meaning he is the anointed one. He is the, the Messiah that was long awaited for, sent by God. He is the one into whom Peter is an apostle. Peter, a witness and follower of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we are to be obedient to Jesus because by his atoning work on the cross, the sprinkling of his blood, we have been given grace and peace. 
In verse 3, Jesus is the Son of God, and He is Lord, and by His great mercy, He has caused us, He, He, He has caused us to be born again. Verse 4, also, through His resurrection, we, the church, Christians, we have a living hope right now. We have a living hope right now. He has been give, he is giving us an inheritance that is imperishable, that is unfading, that is undefiled. According to Peter in verse 5, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that will be revealed in the last time. Meaning, when Jesus comes again. That means Jesus is alive and he's coming back. We face trials and tests so that our faith would be refined so that when Jesus comes back, he would receive the praise, the glory, and the honor. In verse 7, in Jesus Christ alone, we place our faith. We love him. Even though we have not seen him, we still believe because by grace alone, through faith alone, and we rejoice in him alone, because he has given us a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Sola Deo Gloria. And here's a big one. All the hope, the desires, the longings, the writings, the works, the faithfulness, and the prophecies of the Old Testament by the prophets was in looking forward to the suffering and the glories of Christ that the Son of God who accomplished salvation by grace alone, the gospel that was preached to you, the gospel that was preached to us, that we have received, they were longing for. The Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, the gospel, Salvation, our scripture alone, all points us to Jesus so that we would be saved. And they were longing for that. They were desiring for that. They were prophesying toward that. And we enjoy the fulfillment of their longings. And he throws in, in there, at verse 12, even the angels long. They longed to look at the glorious work of the gospel that Jesus had accomplished. Verse 13, we set our hope fully on the grace that Jesus accomplished that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. Once again, meaning Jesus is our eschatological hope. We put our we put our eyes not necessarily on the circumstances of today, but in our future hope in Christ. Verse 17, we are called to be holy as he is holy, as Christ is holy. We see that only through the person and work of Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. No one can be saved except through Jesus Christ and through his precious blood. We have only been ransomed through him. And this shows us the sufficiency and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, we see the preeminence of Christ, that he is truly divine in his nature as God 
and yet condescended as a man to die on the cross as our substitutionary atonement, and then was raised up. Verses 20 through 21. And then last week, we love one another with a sincere brotherly love from a pure heart because we have been born again with the imperishable seed of the living, abiding Word of God. And just who is the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John 1. And then we see in verse 3, we've already mentioned it. If indeed that you have tasted that the Lord is good the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is good. And all of this is just a quick run-through of what we've already seen in the last five, six weeks, something like that through 1 Peter, with a little bit of John thrown there as well, right? This is Jesus. This is what he has done. But, but there's more because there's this week's passage. There's this week's passage that shows us more of who Jesus is. And the reason why he continually is showing us Jesus is for this very reason. Because the more we know him, then the more we will know ourselves. The more we know him, the more we will know and understand ourselves. Now think about how counterintuitive it is to say something like that. That is crazy. To a culture that has elevated self over everything. Has elevated self over everything. Including basic scientific truth, reality, natural law, and basic common grace and morality. Has all now in subjection to self and emotions and feelings. You and your emotions determines everything about your identity now. Every piece of it. Not just the kind of clothes you want to wear or what kind of style glasses you want to have or the kind of music you want to listen, but all the other foolishness of our world. And so self is not just king. Self is not just queen, but self has become God. Self has become God. And this God is just like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar demanded that everyone else bow down. Self demands that everyone else bow down and to accept their reality, to accept their truth, and to accept their identity. Everything is self. You determine who you are. Now, brothers and sisters, that is far from a biblical worldview. The Bible tells us that if you start with you, then you're toast. I mean burnt toast. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25. Doesn't that proverb just speak volumes of the slide of destruction we are seeing today? We must, we must start with God. That's where the Bible starts. In the beginning 
God. We start with Him. Peter starts with Him. Peter borrows this Old Testament metaphor to start with Jesus. Look at verse 4. He says, as you come to Him, Christ, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This metaphor, a living stone, means something. This is something deep. This metaphor is meaningful. It's pointing to uh, Old Testament language, the, the significance of the temple in the Old Testament. The temple in the Old Testament is where God would meet with his people, right? This is where God would meet with his people. The priest would represent the people before God and the people, Israel, Old Testament, would represent then God to the world. And during judgment in the Old Testament, we see the temple was destroyed. The temple was completely destroyed. But in Ezra, as we should well know, in Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. But again, the temple, as it was rebuilt, they grieved because it was nowhere near as grand and great as it was before, which is why the prophet Zechariah, who prophesied during the time of, of Nehemiah and Ezra, is so helpful because he's pointing us to a greater and grander temple that is coming. The living stone comes from Isaiah 28, which is a prophecy of how God would rebuild the temple. And that God, when he rebuilds the temple, it will be far greater than what it was. When Jesus was on earth, what did he call himself? He called himself the temple. Tear this temple down and I will raise it up. Jesus is saying in line with Isaiah, Peter, rightfully understanding what Isaiah is saying, and what Jesus has said is connected the dots all the way here to us, saying Jesus is the new temple. And through him is now how God's people would meet and know him. Through him, his people would be forgiven. Through him, the kingdom of God would go forth to the nations. But he was rejected by man. He was rejected by men. Peter preached this in Acts chapter 4. He preached that Jesus was despised and hated and beaten and, and murderously executed on the cross by the religious leaders. But that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus, in the sight of God, is what? Chosen and precious. Meaning, through his obedience and his work on the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus was honored and vindicated. Man rejects, listen, man rejects and despises him, but God has chosen and honors him. What side do you want to be on? <laughs> In verse 6, Peter goes right into the scripture further to make his case by quoting directly now from Isaiah 28, 16. He says, for it stands in scripture. I love that. Sola Scriptura. We believe God's word's true. Peter believes God's word's true. And he quotes it. For it stands in scripture. Behold, 
I am laying in Zion a stone, right? What we heard earlier, a living stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This cornerstone was chosen, appointed, and the goal is to honor him. He is chosen and precious, and this cornerstone, Christ, will become, has become, the foundation of the new building that is being built up by God. A cornerstone. We may not understand what a cornerstone necessarily is today, but with the impressive stone structures that they used to build in ancient history, they would start with one major stone, and it was called the cornerstone. And this stone had to be almost perfect. Right, no flaws, no holes in it, uh, perfectly straight and, and square. And then from there, they were able to lay the other stones, and that would keep the structure straight. I'm kind of wondering if that's why the Leaning Tower of Pisa is so messed up, because they had a pretty terrible cornerstone, or it just sunk, which I think that's really what happened. Uh, anyways, or too many people stood on one side. So this stone had no weak points. It had to be placed precisely, and it couldn't be lacking in any way, or the structure, the whole structure, would be unsafe. Now, I don't know much about construction, but if a house is framed on unleveled foundation or uh, the first uh, exterior walls are not square and they're off just by a fraction of the inch, that begins to build by the time you start to put drywall in and other things in, it is way off and no longer square. But Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church, we are built upon him, the perfect living stone. Everything is built upon him. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. How many of y'all knew that song was coming? And whoever believes, faith, faith alone, believes in him, will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our cornerstone, and he is holding us up. It is not the other way around. Listen, the life of Jesus, he functions as the, the pattern for us Christians. We too are despised by many, and we will be rejected, but we are chosen and we are honored in God's sight, destined for vindication after suffering. Just as Christ is chosen and honored, the honored one of God, and was so honored at his resurrection, so too believers will be vindicated on the last day. What's true about Christ is also true about us. We will not experience the pain of judgment, but the glorious approval by God. He said, in him, the one who believes, in him will not be put to shame. That's just another way of saying chosen and precious. That's just another way of saying chosen and precious. This is how we are like Christ and we receive the rewards of his suffering. Look at verse 5. Christ is the living stone and you yourselves like living stones. 
We're not the living stone. We're not the cornerstone. None of us are the cornerstone. Sorry, Pope. It's not you. But Christ is. We are the living stones that are being built upon him. We are living because through faith, whoever believes in him, through his, the resurrection life now becomes our life. And even living as exiles, we still have new birth. We still have this living hope. I think this is what Jesus meant when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We have life as living stones. We have life now and we still await a future resurrection. Do you see how we are like Christ? Like living stones being built upon him through his resurrection. Do you understand how being like Christ as a living stone changes our identity and how we should view ourselves? Our identities start with who Christ is and what he has done. It doesn't start with us. When it starts with us, we will begin to build those platforms that will fail us. But when it starts with Christ, we can do all things through him. He strengthens us and give him the glory. He shapes us. And who he is shapes us on how we view the world, how we view ourselves, and how we view our relationships. So this is how we are like Christ. But second... We are being built up. We are being built up. Look back at verse 5. It says, you yourselves like living stones. Right? So we just talked about that. Being built up on the cornerstone. Are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you are following Christ, if you are a Christian, then as a living stone, you are being built upon. And you are being built up on Christ. And you are being built up together with other Christians into a spiritual house. Again, this isn't the idea of the temple. Going back to the idea of the temple. So let's unpack this just a little bit. Every Christian that is brought into God's building project is built upon the cornerstone, Christ. And we are sharing in his identity and in his status that we would be built up into this spiritual house, into this new temple in Christ, and that is the church. It's us being built up together as the church. The scripture tells us that the church is the people of God that have been called out by God. The cultural Christian idea of the church is not a people, but it is a place. It's a piece of property. It's a structure. It's a, a, a building. And I know many times they, people like to think that I'm just splitting hairs here and this is just unnecessary, but for us to understand completely who we are in Christ, then we have to be precise. 
We have to be precise. Buildings are fine. Buildings are nice, and they're, they're comfortable places for us to gather, and they are a wonderful blessing, but buildings are not the church. This small building on Fair Road is not Sovereign Grace Church. Sovereign Grace is its members. It's members who have been called out and baptized in Christ. You know, when we gathered for the first time as a distinct local church and practiced the ordinances five years ago today, we were smaller and we met in the Honey Bowen building across the street. And it was God's mercy in doing so because God was building us into a people and not a building. We were a people that were called out. And since then, what have we seen the Lord do? We have seen the Lord like living stones. Like living stones, he continued to build us up on Christ as a spiritual house. He matured us and continues to mature us in his word. He continues to grow us up in the gospel as we rest in Christ and delight in Christ and glorify Christ together we've even grown in numbers more stones have been stacked upon one another our eyes were less on a place and more on a people because God is building a people not a place here's what it means to be built upon the living stones then however bad it gets for the church now the future, or what we've seen throughout history, it, is always, it always means that the Lord is with us. The Lord is with his church. Again, we're living stones being built up into this new spiritual house. Again, speaking back to the temple, a place where, where God dwelt with his people. Listen, he dwells with us now. He's building us up as a spiritual house, as his temple. The house is spiritual because we are brought to life and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And so we never have to fear that God will abandon his church because we are being built upon the cornerstone, his son. Brothers and sisters, we are not orphans. We are not rejected stones in a rubble in a pile, but we are being stacked upon the cornerstone. He is with us. Second, the the fact that God dwells with us in his spirit means that worship is no longer limited to one place. The, The Jews had the pilgrimage to the temple three times a year, and the Christians scattered throughout the world. They didn't need the temple because they were the new temple. Can you comprehend the magnitude of that one truth, we gather here, and God is with us. That's, that's like an amen moment, right? God is with us, right? I mean, he, he's with us. We don't have to conjure up his presence. There's, there's no begging for him to show up. We're not begging him to show up with our smoke and mirrors and lights and how experiential we can get and how emotional we can get. He is with us with his spirit and in his word. 
And when we gather, he is with us and he's building us up. He's putting us up, putting us together, building us up with the mortar of his word, building us as a spiritual house. Brothers and sisters, how encouraging is that for this little flock? Oh, that encourages me. I don't need to go to the big structures. What is he building us up through Jesus Christ to be? Verse 9 tells us to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. As a people that is being built up by God into a spiritual house, our status, our identities as the people of God, it changes. No longer as lost but as chosen, no longer as peasant, but royal, no longer as sinner, but holy, no longer orphan, but a people for his own possession. These titles of, uh, for God's people are just soaked with the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 20, my chosen people. Exodus 19, uh, 5 through 6, you are my treasured possession, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here's the message that he's conveying here. Though all around are false platforms of identity, and all that you might experience is humili uh, humiliation and shame and loss. However, you are members of a new race, a royal servants of the supreme king, citizens of a divine kingdom, and residents of a heavenly city. As a chosen people, we belong to God as his elect. We are a holy nation by Christ, a people set apart by Christ for the Lord, and we enjoy his special presence in his favor. Look at verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Again, Old Testament language, but truly beautiful when you view that verse through Romans 8 and the ad adoption. How an adoption, they were, they were once an orphan, but now they have been brought in as God's people. You are not receiving mercy from the world, but from God you have received mercy and grace and forgiveness. And the metaphors that he's using in verse 10 come from Hosea, which wasn't a metaphor for Hosea. It was reality. Hosea had to marry a prostitute. God told him, go marry a prostitute. He married Gomer. They had three children. The first child's name was Jezreel. The second, the second was a daughter. And her name was to be No Mercy. Excuse me, a son. It's to be No Mercy. And then another, Not My People. And this was to illustrate God's contempt, contempt for his unfaithful people. This was God saying, Look, this is you all, as my children, you are unfaithful and there's no mercy. But that's not the end of the story. Because even though they would be judged, in Hosea 2.23, God says, 
You are my people. You are my people, and you have received mercy. You see, the church is the beautiful picture of the Lord's fulfillment of these promises. And this is our identity. This is our identity. Chosen, royal, priest, holy, his people. Receive the mercy that he is building up. This identity then, what does it do? It helps us to fight fear. It helps us to fight sin. It helps us in temptation. When doubts from suffering and pain come, we fight it with this truth that even in this, he is still building us up. It also tells us that you are part of a building, meaning you are a part of something way bigger than you could ever imagine. Wrap your identity in that. That you're a part of so much bigger. Lastly, the third way we are to understand our new identity is to see how we are given a purpose. Life is not meaningless and void of purpose. Nor are we, nor are we not living to, uh, trying to figure out our goal. We're not just trying to figure out our goal as we go. We're not trying to figure out the purpose of, of our lives as we, we go and trying to do it through the various things like Solomon tried. We know what our purposes are. We know what our purpose is. Think about knowing who you are and what your purpose is and how that will shape and change how you live your life. The kind of decisions that you will make, whatever you end up doing, whether it be in school, in marriage, in careers, in relationships, then knowing these purposes and knowing who we are, then we can do them with joy to the glory of God. The first purpose comes from verse 5. We are called to be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood in verse 10. Through the righteousness of Christ, he is made us into a kingdom of priests. A priest represents God. It represented God to the people by communicating God's word to them and by representing the people before God and making offerings and sacrifices. But Jesus had already offered himself once and for all the sacrifice that was needed. So these priests... Us, these priests, we're not offering grain or animal offerings, but rather we offer what verse 5 tells us. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we are offer spiritual, meaning these sacrifices are spirit-empowered. Empowered by the Holy Spirit that is indwelling us, right? That makes us these living stones that we're being built upon, the, the, the cornerstone of Christ. And the Spirit then empowers these spiritual sacrifices, which are only acceptable sacrifices to God. All the means of grace, all the good works that are empowered by the Holy Spirit are an offering of blessing to God that he alone would receive the glory. Now, now listen, 
I don't want us to overthink this. Don't overthink this because, because everything isn't just the person who is leading worship and teaching as if I'm the only one or our other elders are the only ones offering spiritual gifts. No, this is for everyone who is in Christ who is now a kingdom of priests. So uh, uh, helping a sister who is swamped at home, caring for a brother who is going through a hard time, helping cleaning up after our gathering meal or other things, counseling a younger couple who is struggling, preparing a meal for a family who is grieving or is in need, praying for one another for their spiritual good and the growth in needs, leading Bible studies together, meeting each other's needs because you have the means to meet those needs praying in our gatherings together and praying with one another, helping, with, helping care for the children in our church. If you are a Christian and you have been set apart as a priest to serve in God's presence as a priest in order to make much of God in this world and in this church through Jesus Christ. Don't overthink the spiritual sacrifices. What a great purpose we all have as priests. Purpose number two comes from verse nine. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You. You proclaim. You, priest. You proclaim. You, you, you proclaim, you priests proclaim. That means you do not need to wait for anyone else. You do not need professionals. You proclaim, you are a priest. You are a part of the priesthood. We believe in the priesthood of the believers, which means you have the authority to proclaim him because you have his word and you have his Holy Spirit. You do not need another representative. You can pray. You can offer spiritual sacrifices. You can read your Bible on your own and understand. You can tell, you can tell about our wonderful Savior. You can tell others of our wonderful Savior. Tell of his excellencies. Speak of his glories. Speak of his majesty. Speak of his his love. Speak of his grace. What a privilege we have to speak for our Savior. For the King of kings and the Lord of lords. None of us in our earthly lineage are royalty. At least we may not, I may not, probably not. We have no affluence and very little power and little position. And we have no priestly lineage. But in Christ, he has made us priests. We proclaim the excellencies of our King. We don't just keep this to ourselves. 
Now, unfortunately, there are those who will not hear. They will not believe. They will reject you, as we saw in this passage, that Jesus was rejected. They will reject you, but really, they are rejecting Christ. Look at verse 4. The living stone was rejected by men. Verse 7. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone of stumbling a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and as, as they were destined to. In the Gospels, Christ, the cornerstone, was a stumbling block for the religious leaders. And at the cross, he was rejected by all men except by a few disciples and his mom. Honor is for those who have faith as it says. But for those who do not have faith, the cornerstone will continue to be a stumbling block for them. A rock of offense. Christ, the gospel, the greatest news of all time is offensive. Newsflash is offensive. I mean, listen, I mean, all, out of all the nutty things we're seeing today, the gospel is what's offensive? But it is. But it is. The gospel is what offends. The gospel divides. And when we proclaim his, excellence, his excellencies, there are going to be those who are on that wide path of destruction who willingly stumble over Christ. That in their pride, willingly stumble over Christ. But regardless to whether or not they believe, Christ is still the cornerstone. The stone doesn't move. They move. And here's the crux. They stumbled their unbelief because they disobey the word. They disobey the word, the word of God, the truth, Christ. You see, the free will of man is willingly captivated and enslaved to sin, to disobey the word, and to continue in unbelief. However, those that continue to stumble and disobey the word, they do as Peter tells us because they were destined to. You see, sin has them enslaved. Sin has them enslaved, willingly, willingly enslaved. But God has determined that they would disbelieve and stumble. God is sovereign and he's in control of all things. From the decisions made by kings to the throw of the dice, man is completely responsible for their decisions. That's what we see here. There's no debate about that. Man is completely responsible for their decisions to continue to stumble over Christ. But we also see that God is sovereign and ordains all things. How these things fit together logically, this is the compatibilist view, is difficult. However, the Bible is clear that these both are true. We are, told, we are told this not to, not to debate them, but to be encouraged by them. 
and, and have assurance that in Christ, our, in our salvation, and continue to persevere in obedience, which includes the purpose of always proclaiming his excellencies. We proclaim his excellencies because there are those who will not stumble and who will believe by his grace. In this new identity, we have these two great purposes as priests and as proclaimers. And so whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if we are going to persevere well in this life, we must embrace what Peter has said about our new identity in Christ. That we are like him, living stones, that we are being built upon the cornerstone of Christ. And we have a glorious purpose. Could you think of any other identity worth taking on than that? Don't let sin, the evil one, the world, friends or family, fatigue, make you forget who you are in Christ and whose you are, what your glorious purpose is, and how you are being built upon him. If I had to boil it down all to one basic application, it would be this. Do you believe the word of God? Is it sufficient for you? If you do, then build your life upon the rock of Christ Jesus, that solid foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this, this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, O oh God, how you have led us and shepherded us in your word. And you continue to shepherd us by building us up in your Son, Jesus Christ. That he who began a good work in us will see it in the day of completion. Lord, I pray, not just for now, but for this week, that these will be our identity in Christ. And how we love how we give, how we serve, how we bear with one another, how we speak to one another, how we work, but all be wrapped up in our new identity in Christ as living stones. And may we be committed to these great purposes in our identity to be your priests, to represent you to this world and to each other and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Lord, would you be glorified in these things? Would you be made much of in our lives? And would you be with us as we continue our gathering this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.